Christian, have you ever looked at your life situation? And by life situation, I mean the cards God has dealt you, as it were. All those sovereignly orchestrated circumstances and variables that make up your life and so shape so much of who you are and how you presently live. Have you ever looked at your life situation, Christian, from a negative, dissatisfied, or discontented perspective? Perhaps what has you in a dissatisfied frame of mind is your career or your marital status. Those things are not where you want them to be. Or perhaps it's your academic ability, your social skills, your level of income, where you live, the parents the Lord gave you, the children the Lord did or did not give you, the spouse the Lord did or did not give you, the friends the Lord has or has not given you, your race, your mental and emotional health, your gender perhaps, your looks, your sexual orientation, your past life mistakes, your past sin, the sin you currently struggle with, past sexual abuse, your physical health, all those sovereignly orchestrated circumstances and variables that shape so much of, of who you are and how you presently live. Have you ever looked at your life situation, friend, and thought, the grass is greener on the other side of that fence? I'm, I'm laboring under some serious disadvantages here. Just, just look at so-and-so. Man, if I had it going on like they have it going on, things would be a whole lot better. I mean, is it any wonder they walk with such a spring in their step? Have you ever thought like that? We all have. Or, or a variation on that theme. Have you ever thought, if only the circumstances of life in which I presently find myself would change? Or if they had never happened at all? Why did that terrible thing happen to me all those years ago? If only my life had never gone down that path. If only this, that, and the other thing were different. If only change were to occur, then my life would be on the right track. Then I could be happy. Then I could be a really good Christian. Then I could be doing what God really wants me to, do, to be doing, what I should have been doing, and, and what should have been happening all those years actually will finally be happening. And if and when my life situation changes, then I can be a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better church member, a better neighbor. That sort of thinking is quite common. Christians often struggle to submit themselves to God's secret will for our life, and we imagine that our present life situation hamstrings effective Christian ministry. Present faithfulness and fruitfulness, present joy and contentment, future reward. But that's wrong. And God won't allow his children to think and live that way. God loves us enough and he's jealous enough for his own glory to say, stop it. Because nothing serves to undercut Christian joy or our usefulness in the local church and, and, and her people and the advance of the kingdom of God or, or to rob God of the glory of which he is Jew, um, than for his blood-bought people to be sinfully stuck in the unbiblical perspective where God's perfect will, his fatherly discipline, his sovereign good sway over our life is resented. It makes us uh, bitter and dissatisfied, causing us to, to doubt and to question, sowing seeds of discontent and pushing all we presently enjoy in the grace of the gospel to the periphery, to the sideline of our life. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but once the gospel is off center stage in my life, I naturally 
shine a spotlight on all of my problems, trials, defects, and defeats. With the gospel pushed off to the side, I see very clearly that I have a lot to be discontent about in my life. Friend, I want to speak to you this morning on an issue of tremendous significance for your life as a Christian. It's, it's a big issue, and it's related to a host of themes that's found in Scripture. Themes such as God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Christian discipline, Christian maturity, Christian contentment, our eternal perspective on life, the will of God for our lives, the role of prayer. What is this biblical teaching? You look in your bulletin, you can see the main principle. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Being a Christian means bringing what one is into the service of God. Or, or to put that in a more colloquial fashion, Christians are to bloom where God has planted us. So let me unpack that a bit. Our Heavenly Father is served in a variety of means and in a variety of places by Christians in every conceivable life situation. There are Christian pastors living for Jesus and serving him as prisoners in North Korean political prison camps, just as there are Christian farmers serving him in southwestern Ontario. They both bring who they are into the service of God in that sovereignly assigned situation. There are Christian single moms living in government housing in Toronto. There are wealthy Christian business executives living in Dallas, Texas. There are Christians in every conceivable life situation, and all of them are to be serving Jesus Christ faithfully in the role he has sovereignly called them to, bringing glory to his name. And our life situation, your situation, Christian, is no exception. Listen carefully, brother, sister. It's, it's not necessary for you to leave your present situation, to become something else, or to rise to another level, to, to have a change in status, or to have a change in circumstances in order to serve God more faithfully, or to be a better, more spiritual Christian. Your plate is already 100% full of God-glorifying potential. And I don't think any of us want to say that we've even begun to begin living as faithfully as we ought for our King. Who do you think has the biggest crowns in heaven? By default, is it the John Pipers and John MacArthur's of the world? No, it's not. Um, Jesse Bloomfield, your present life situation sister as a wife a mom to, to two to two little girls a member of new city a daughter a sister a neighbor is itself sanctified to god's service and i would say that to every believer here today being a christian means bringing who you are who god has made you and the very situation and in which he has called you into his service and the Apostle Paul is telling us in our text today, remain in the state you were in when converted, when you were drawn by God into believing, a believing, loving fellowship with his son. And in that state, serve God faithfully. Bloom where you're planted. Now, in the immediate context, Paul applies this to the issue of circumcision and slavery, which at first blush seems very strange because the broader context of chapter 7 is all about 
matters related to marriage, isn't it? So sexual relations, divorce, second marriages, celibacy, singleness, engagement, circumcision, and slavery seem very far removed from that world. Well, there's an overall structure to this chapter. And you can see this laid out at the bottom of your handout in those texts that I've listed. And verses 17 to 24, our text today, is the key to understanding the whole thing. Notice what Paul writes in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And then verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Then verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And that principle of remaining dominates every paragraph in chapter 7. So to the married, stay married with full conjugal rights. To the unmarried and the widows, it's good to remain unmarried. To the married, where both partners are believers, remain married. To those with an unbelieving spouse, remain married. On matters related to slavery and circumcision, remain the place you were at the time that you, the Lord called you. Uh, to virgins, it's good to remain unmarried. To married women and widows, the married are bound to the marriage. When widowed, it is good to remain that way, right? So remain, remain, remain. Paul is telling the Corinthians, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, whether married or not, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're a slave or free, bloom where you're planted. Conduct yourselves accordingly. God's called you to this. Issues related to marital, racial, or social status, those circumstances are what the Lord and his sovereign purposes assigns to each Christian. And our job is to be faithful. Something else that sheds light on this matter is verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, we looked at this last week. The word rendered crisis in this verse simply means necessity or compulsion. What Paul is referring to is the, the present necessity, the present uh, compulsion of living with the end in view. And the apostle puts the matter succinctly in verse 31. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Brothers and sisters, the old order of sin and rebellion has not yet passed away. It's still here, but it's doomed. It's doomed. It's living on borrowed time. And the consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming. That changes how Christians look at absolutely everything. Our assurance of God's future world, the consummated kingdom of Christ, transforms our attitudes toward this life and all of our earthly activities and prioritizations. Certainly, we should be glad of earthly success, but not overly glad this world in its present form is passing away. And we can be saddened by failure, but not too downcast, because our true joy in the future is guaranteed by God. We're not to allow this passing world to dictate the priorities of our existence. Instead, we're to live life in such a way that it shows we understand God's eschatological reality, the priorities of the kingdom of God, the shortness of time. And so we roll up our sleeves and we get to work in the patch where the Lord has sovereignly assigned us. We bloom where he's planted us and we don't become morbidly preoccupied with the what ifs or if only this, that or the other thing. So let me give you three examples 
First, think of a poor woman of a lower caste living in Uttar Pradesh in northern India who suffers debilitating arthritis, is married to a lazy husband no one in the village respects, and the Lord saves her. Second, a white single Canadian male, 45 years old, a game warden prone to serious bouts of depression who lives in northern Ontario with a popular blog on the mating habits of waterfowl. And the Lord saves him. Third, a Jewish corporate lawyer living in Montreal, married with three kids with close ties to the business community, and the Lord saves him. So in all three cases, what happens next? What are they supposed to do? Well, first, they all get baptized, right? And they're all added to that local Bible-believing church. And they show by their life that they're repenting of sin, And then they keep on living their lives in the context of that local church. In Paul's view, for all three people, their station in life is under the sovereign and gracious direction of God. He's assigned it to them. He's called them to it. And by God calling a person within a given situation, the situation itself is taken up in the call and is thus sanctified to them. Unless, obviously, their, their, their career or their lifestyle is in some, obviously, totally immoral uh, place. That wouldn't apply in that case, obviously. But God tells the first person, glorify me as a faithful Christian woman in Uttar Pradesh who is afflicted with arthritis and who is married to a lazy unbeliever. That's your assigned role, daughter. Now, glorify me. Don't seek to get out of it by hook or by crook. Glorify me in it. And he tells the second person, Glorify me as a single white game warden struggling with depression in northern Ontario with a popular blog on the mating habits of waterfowl. That's the role I've assigned you. That's the context in which you live out your life. Now, glorify me. Be faithful. He tells the third Glorify me as a Jewish corporate lawyer living in Montreal, being a good Christian influence to your unbelieving wife and three uh, kids and displaying my grace to sinners before the business community. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, of course, Paul's not concerned that Christians forever retain their present situation. He's going to say in a few verses, if a slave can gain their freedom, they should do so. So yes, you may accept that promotion at work, Christian. Yes, singles, you may get married. If that 45-year-old game warden meets a a Christian woman and they want to get married and then he decides to change careers and be a freelance writer for Nature magazine and move to Vancouver, that's totally fine. What Paul's concerned with is we recognize that, that being called by Jesus Christ sets Christians free to live out our life within that situation. If God saves you in the context of a hard, hard marriage and terrible physical health, he will give you grace, Christian, but he's called you to serve him and live for him and glorify him through that situation in which he sovereignly planted you and he wants you to bloom. But that's a truth not understood by many, many Christians. And there's a flip side to this coin. If God called you to himself when you were a homemaker, 
living in the suburbs with two kids hanging off your hips, then you don't need to go to the mission field in Southeast Asia to be a better, more faithful, in the will of God Christian. Uh, Brother, you don't have to quit your job at the post office and go do something more holy and effective and valuable and purposeful like attend seminary to be a pastor. How you live as a Christian who works at Canada Post is just as holy, effective, and valuable. That's your God-assigned role. That life situation is the proper one in which to live out God's call. You can be sure of that. And God will work out your sanctification and all his good purposes for your life in that workaday context just as effectively as if you were living on the mission field somewhere. Bloom where you're planted, married or single, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Bloom where you are planted. And be on the lookout for a very common tactic of our adversary, the devil. That's, that's where we're, we're treading water. We're waiting for things to change. Waiting for that providence of God which he has placed in our life for our good, but which we're thinking of as a giant cinder block tied to our ankle uh, to be cut away so that we can then then start moving ahead and living out lives of power and faithfulness and usefulness and purpose. I can't tell you how many Christians get stuck in that mire. I I certainly did in spades. And I, I tell you this from personal experience, that is a trap that will suffocate your relationship with Jesus. That's why I said at the beginning of this sermon that this is a very big issue related to themes such as God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Christian discipline, Christian maturity, Christian contentment, our eternal perspective on life, the will of God for our lives, the role of prayer. If you're a stay-at-home mom in suburbia, Paul teaches in Titus 2, 4-5, love your husband and children, be self-controlled and pure, be busy at home, be kind, and be subject to your husband so that no one will malign the word of God. So do all that, sister, while prioritizing your church membership. And do all you can to develop a friendship with the lesbian couple who live down the street. Let your children and their children play together. Use your big suburban home to host a Bible study or a church barbecue or host a missionary home on furlough. Use your minivan to drive some of the neighborhood kids to soccer practice. Bloom where you're planted, sister. If you're a professional in a very liberal work environment, perhaps you could start a lunchtime Bible study going through the Gospel of Mark for skeptics with your colleagues during lunch. Don't go to the strip club with your workmates. Don't get drunk at the Christmas party. Say no to office gossip. Be honest. Don't have an affair with your secretary. Bloom where you're planted. If you're battling leukemia, then your submission to the Lordship of Christ and your obedience to his word and your faithful witness to the fallen world must not be put on the back burner as you undergo chemotherapy. Bloom where you're planted. God has called you to this. You can be 100% certain that he has assigned you that role, Christian. If the Lord saved you while you were serving a life sentence for for murder, uh, then bloom where you're planted. You're now living for Jesus in cell block D. Bring him glory. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse, 
or if you're single, or if you're divorced, bloom where you're planted. Your marital status is not a cinder block. It's God's loving, good providence in your life, and it's his sovereignly sanctioned decree that you serve him in that situation, that you bring him glory for a few years, or perhaps a few decades, before you reign with Jesus, your true bridegroom, for all eternity on a recreated earth. Christian, you are a conduit of God's grace and blessing to all your brothers and sisters in Christ at New City. But if you're waiting for your life situation to change, for that cinder block to be cut, before you can really get serious about fulfilling the role God has called you to as a Christian and as a faithful member of this church, we'll all be the losers for it. We won't be getting your best because you're saving it for a set of circumstances that the Lord has not seen fit to create and which he may never create. Here's something. I've talked to a number of Christians over the years about their giving to the church, and I hear a common refrain. I'll give a meaningful, sacrificial portion of my income to the church once I start making more money. No, you won't. You're kidding yourself. What's stopping you from being faithful now? Are you saving your faithfulness for a set of circumstances the Lord has not seen fit to create and which he may never create? Maybe God's calling you to die to something, brother. Maybe he's calling you to give something up, sister, to prioritize other things. God has placed each of us in our circumstances. He has made us who we are, and we must be faithful. And to encourage the Corinthians and us, Paul assures them that what he's teaching here isn't some novelty that he's cooked up just for them. Verse 17b, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And to make this point the more effective, Paul uses two illustrations, circumcision and slavery. So verse 18, he writes, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. And what Paul's saying here is, well, were you a Jew when you came to faith in Christ? If so, then it's not necessary for you to become a Gentile. Were you a Gentile when you came to faith in Christ? Then you don't have to become a Jew. Being a Jew means nothing. Being a Gentile means nothing. Christ has made those ethnic distinctions obsolete. The gospel transcends all of that. The gospel of Jesus Christ tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and unites us in one body. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now, in this basically Gentile church in Corinth, what Paul says in verse 19a is no big deal. Circumcision was never an issue for this church like it was in Galatia. 100 other things were issues in the Corinthian church, but not circumcision. But it's almost impossible for us to imagine the horror with which a fellow Jew would hear Paul's words. This is blasphemy. Not only does circumcision count, it counts counts for everything above all else this is the sign of the covenant this is the badge of israel's special standing with god but paul clearly sees the implications of this issue for the gospel doesn't he god has fully accomplished his purposes for the salvation of his people in the cross and resurrection of jesus christ period full stop 
Uh, but if we're if we're to introduce circumcision on top of that, if we if we allow change on that level, th- then the cross is negated and the gospel is destroyed. And so Paul proclaims circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And then Paul repeats his main theme in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And now, by moving the discussion into the area of slavery, Paul goes on to show that not only is the Christian is Christ, a Christian's ethnic status irrelevant, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter, so is our social status. Slave, free, it doesn't matter. And what Paul says here is astonishing. Look at verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. That's to say, it's irrelevant. Your social status is not a matter of concern if you're a Christian. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now, obviously, the issue of slavery was looked upon in a different light by first century Christians compared to Christians living in modern liberal democracy. Who's, uh, we need to we do need to proceed here with, 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 with caution. There's sensitivities here, obviously. So that means we need to give some of the background at this point. We need to understand that. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to understand this passage. And then once we do that, then I'm going to wrap things up with three practical applications. So let's just look for a moment at slavery in the first century. When we think of slavery, I'd wager most of us think of black African slaves. We think of the American South. We think of Alex Haley's roots. We think of 12 years a slave or, or Django Unchained. However, there are several distinctive characteristics of Roman-era slavery to bear in mind. Number one, racial factors played no role. Okay, and that, that in itself, that is a huge, huge difference. Roman-era slavery had nothing to do with race or a particular people group, whereas slavery in America in the 17th through 19th centuries principally involved the acquisition of black African slaves forcibly taken from their homeland. But Roman slaves were of virtually every race of people in the Mediterranean region, people from every country. In, in his excellent book, Race and Culture, African-American scholar Thomas Sowell points out that every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. Whites had enslaved other whites in Europe for centuries before the first black slave was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Only late in history were human beings even capable of crossing an ocean to get millions of other human beings of a different race. So in the thousands of years before that, Europeans enslaved other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans, and the First Nations of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other First Nations of the Western Hemisphere. Now, in the first century, the most common source of slaves were prisoners of war. But people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. That's because there were no bankruptcy laws. And if you, it's, it's what you did if you couldn't pay your debts. And if you were fortunate enough to have a good master, if you had a good job, then life was easier for you in some sense. Uh, your master was taking care of you. He had to provide for you. Now, I realize that sounds a bit like I'm saying if someone cuts your foot off with an axe, they've really done you a favor and you should be really grateful because it's five less toenails <laughs> you have to worry about trimming. But think about it. If you can't get work to support your family or if you get sick or if you get become injured, 
Unless you take to begging in the streets, you and your family will starve. There was no social safety net, and being able to sell yourself and family into slavery was sort of a, the equivalent of a social welfare system. And if you could pay back your master and purchase price, um, then, then you'd be released. Those were the rules. That was a lot. What, what he paid for you, if you can pay that back, then you're free. That's the, those are the rules. Another distinctive of Roman era slavery, uh, many, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. In fact, so many were being released from their servitude in the first century, um, in the early first century, that Caesar Augustus declared 30 years old to be the, the minimum age for emancipation. Andrew T. Lincoln writes this, No one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept, indentured labor in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employers, was considered a given. And owners paid their slaves an occasional sum of money called the peculium to reward them for their hard work. And this fund was commonly used by the slaves to purchase their freedom. By contrast, slaves in the new world had no hope for manumission or freedom. Third, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Although some slaves were confined to... Uh, for many years to hard labor in agriculture and manufacturing or domestic duties, many others served as doctors and teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. African slaves, by contrast, in the antebellum south were seldom entrusted with responsible positions, nor did they have the training uh, for any skilled jobs. They, they were even forbidden to learn to read. Now, however, lest I create the wrong impression here, slaves in the Roman era possessed few legal rights. They lacked honor. They were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate and were sometimes treated with hideous cruelty. They were permitted no legally sanctioned marriage or family bonds. They could not keep their own children born to them while in slavery. They could be separated from their spouses by the slave master, and they were not allowed to own property. Uh, not of any kind. Now, the estimates vary a bit, but basically Corinth's population broke down three ways. Approximately one-third were currently slaves, one-third were emancipated slaves, and one-third were freeborn citizens. It makes for a fascinating study, but there are more points of dissimilarity I could mention, right? But, but probably the most important factor in our understanding the church's response to the abolition of slavery is that the early Christians did not understand their calling in those terms, which is remarkable because the church was full of slaves. Christians in the first century were looking at the world and their role in the world from a biblical perspective. Christians rejoiced in their identity as the people of the new realm, inaugurated by God to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they also knew that the old realm still existed and would exist until Jesus returned in glory. And slavery was not an institution that was going to be abolished anytime soon. 
it was the socioeconomic labor structure reality in which early Christians existed. And so the church's focus was on encouraging Christians to realize that their new realm of existence was what ultimately mattered and that this new existence must dictate the way they related to the world and to one another. Uh, all those socioeconomic, political, earthly realities were trivial in comparison with the eternal, spiritual realities. It was the gospel. That's what mattered. That was, that was the center of the church's focus, not slaves of the world unite. Bear in mind, there would be slaves and slave masters, multiple slaves, multiple slave masters in the same local church. All of them united to Christ and part of the same spiritual family in an eternal bond of fellowship. And they both constantly needed to resist any idea of a social hierarchy in the church. Masters at the top, slaves at the bottom. Because to cave into that kind of thinking was a denial of the gospel. In the spiritual realm, there is no social hierarchy in the church. That's why Paul could write in Galatians 5.26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 3.11, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, obviously, to be moved from the position of slave to a freed person was a highly valued improvement. And Christian slaves in the church were no doubt saving up to buy their freedom. And many may have looked at their freed and born free brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus with, with great envy. Uh, also, slavery would have placed considerable limitations on on, on their Christian lives and service, humanly speaking. Just there, there are just certain things that you can't do if you're somebody else's slave. So the 7.30 p.m. Thursday night prayer meeting, forget about it. Try try prayer meeting at 4.30 a.m. before getting breakfast ready for the master and his family. That's what you would have to do. But along comes the Apostle Paul. Verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Don't let your social condition be a concern for you. It's irrelevant. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then he adds this. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, uh, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price, verse 23. As John Stott writes, The slave who is called by God and is united to Jesus has entered the glorious liberty of the gospel. He is a former slave, a slave to sin and to Satan, who has now been freed by Jesus from that dark dominion. He has entered into a divine liberty which matters so much more than his outward social circumstances, so much so that he should truly see himself as the Lord's freed person. And with that new city comes this complementary truth, that the Christian who was a free person when Jesus called them to himself is now Jesus' slave. Jesus has bought you, Brother, he has bought you, sister. He has redeemed you. That's slave market language. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with his precious blood. 
And your whole life is to be lived now in service to your new master. Our life is no longer our own to live. The Christian slave is free and the Christian free person is a slave because both have been purchased by Christ's life, violently offered up in their place. And in all things, we must live our lives under the lordship of Christ in obedience to him, which is why Paul warns in verse 23b, do not become slaves of human beings. He doesn't mean that literally. He's not saying don't sell yourselves into slavery if you go bankrupt. He's speaking metaphorically. He's saying you must not come under the bondage of mere humans. You are the slaves of another, a master who has set you free. And in the context of Paul's letter, the most obvious danger of this kind, this bondage, would be that of allowing the cultural prejudices of others regarding singleness or marriage to govern one's own decisions about how best to serve the Lord. So Paul's saying, don't let social relations or public opinion or evil advisors interfere with the absolute service, which is due to Jesus Christ. Do not become slaves of human beings. And then for the third time, Paul warns against seeking a change in status, marital status, ethnic, you know, social, simply because we're now a Christian. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, in the time we have left, let me trace out just a few points of application. A text like this, New City, in a culture like ours, where where our role in life, our station in life, pretty much determines our worth, and where upward mobility, rising to a higher social or economic position is almost a sacred duty. A text like this does not get an easy hearing. And what Paul is teaching in this passage needs to be heard anew. And it's the status, status of any kind is ultimately irrelevant with God. And so, and so must it be with his children. It's irrelevant. This, this teaching applies to us when we're evaluating our own worth and the worth of others. Which doesn't mean that in a country like Canada, a nation uh, which provides its people so many opportunities uh, that we shouldn't seek to better ourselves. It's not saying that. This text, what, what Paul's teaching here is not, is not, a, it's not a biblical, it's not biblical sanction to be a lazy slacker. You know, he's not saying remain as you are forever, stuck in a hole. No, we're, we're to be improving the assets our master has entrusted into our care as faithful slaves until Jesus returns, Matthew 25. It's just that we don't place any stock in those assets. And they're never to be the basis of prideful, arrogant comparison or covetous, envious, discontented desire. What matters is faithfulness and our master has sovereignly placed some of his slaves in the halls of power with great worldly status but not too many others are firmly embedded among the poor the weak the foolish the low and the despised and that in turn is how they are regarded by this wicked world but never by us what did we read back in 1 Corinthians one twenty six? 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. New City, where are the brilliant intellects among us? Not many of us are wise by human standards. Uh, where, where are the politically influential? Where are the rich? By and large, the Church of Christ is composed of the poor and the obscure, which is why, incidentally, we don't find mandates in the New Testament for Christians to redeem the culture. We're not part of that power base. We're not, by and large, uh, the influencers in our culture. In fact, it's often with a kind of intellectual disdain, with, with class snobbery, that people look down upon the church. So why is it then that we constantly parade Christian athletes and Christian media personalities and Christian pop singers? Why should we think that their opinions or, or their experiences of grace are of more significance than those of any other believer? Think about this. When we tell outsiders about the people in our church, do we instantly think of the despised and the lowly who have become Christians? Or do we love to impress people with the importance of the men and women who have become Christians and joined New City? Here, here visitor, let me, let me introduce you to this doctor who's a member here. Or here's the lawyer. Here's the MPP. Here's our, here's our resident celebrity artist. As one commentator tells it, modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infected with the virus of triumphalism. And the resulting illness destroys humility, minimizes grace, and offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom of our day. God save us. A, a local church is one of those places that collects people with problems. It's a badge of honor, really. We are supposed to be the most non-judgmental group of people on the face of the earth. The disenfranchised should feel right at home in our local assembly. James speaks of this in his epistle, doesn't he? If a rich person and a poor person enter the church, how are they to be treated? Exactly the same. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Secondly, when you ask yourself the question, Christian, what is God's will for my life? Your answer must be a resounding. His will is that I maintain close fellowship with him and devote myself to obeying his commands. First Thessalonians 4.3 It is God's will that you should be sanctified. God's revealed will for you, which is the only will you are responsible to obey, is your sanctification, your progressive holiness, not your vocation, uh, nor has God told you where and how to serve him. Nor has he told you whom to marry, or if you will ever be married, or divorced, or widowed. But he has told you to devote yourself to obeying his commands. So do that with all your heart, 
And so glorify him in all things and then do what you want with your life. That's how, that's how this works. Do you recall in previous sermons the concentric circles of Christian prioritization? Our, our first priority in that inner circle is to walk closely with the Lord ourselves. Our next priority is our spouse. Our children come after that. Then our church family. Then the world. In the fear of the Lord, have all those ducks in a row. And then do what you want with your life, Christian. Make every effort to stay close to God and to obey the commands of Scripture. And God will distribute his people into the world precisely where he wants their influence for him to be. Just be faithful. Always remember, you're a slave who's been bought with a price. So be a faithful slave. Bloom where you're planted. And this is directly linked with my final point. Your life, your your situation is God's assignment to you, Christian. Verse 17. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them. And that's not a verse for the jungle missionaries. It's for all of us. God is sovereign. It's no accident that you are where you are. Be that up to your eyebrows with with insanity of raising young children or watching your elderly dad suffer from dementia and slowly dying. Proverbs 16, 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Your situation is God's assignment to you, Christian. You have a commission. We all do. And the time is short. The last act of the old order is winding down, and the new order has already begun. So, there's an eschatological urgency to our God-given assignment, New City. The end is coming soon. So bloom where you are sovereignly planted.